0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, if you haven't been with us recently, last week, the last couple of weeks, just uh, to set the context for you, Paul began his second missionary journey, the end of chapter 15, chapter 16, we covered all that, and he's, he's moving from headquarters in Antioch of Syria going this way, which is west, and he's keying first on churches that he established already to encourage them, see how they're doing, making progress. But then the goal after that is to go to cities he'd never been before, uh, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, to try to plant churches, raise up leadership, and leave an outpost for God's gospel in all these key cities. And they're key cities, significant cities, usually large cities now is Paul's pattern, where he can make the most impact on certain cultures in certain areas. And so that's what he's been doing. Philippi was a key city uh, in that area, Macedonia, then Thessalonica as well. Uh, And then he ended up in Berea getting kind of chased out of town. But after uh, going to Berea, then he headed to Athens, which is where we'll pick up uh, today. And we saw that he entered Athens, which is in southern Greece. And actually, he's not heading to Athens on this trip. He's actually heading to Corinth as his destination, the city of Corinth, Corinth being... Oh, maybe 65 miles away from Athens, across the waterway, going west. And the reason Paul wants to go to Corinth is because in Paul's day, around 51 AD, the city of Corinth was kind of the new influential political capital city of that day. And also the newer influential commercial city of Paul's day down in southern Greece. 400 years before Paul's day, Athens definitely was the standout city, and it was influential in all manners, including politically. Uh, But not so 400 years later. It's somewhat diminished in its prominence and significance. There's been tremendous decline in many areas of the culture in the city of Athens. But nevertheless, because of its history and its art and culture and predecessors, who reached a zenith in terms of human capability with academics, intellectualism, philosophy, the great philosophers, and we know them well, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and many others. And again, because of that artwork that was done, so much of it in limestone, but also in marble that it just remained for hundreds of years as the highest human achievement in terms of of artwork and sculpture that was just Awesome to behold for the people in that day. And so that's why the influence, the significance, the renown of Athens lasted 400 years into the days of Paul. Uh, So it still was a very significant city, and it brought a lot of attention by way of tourism. So it is a a packed city, sprawling with people coming from afar, from all different directions. So Paul's going to spend a brief amount of time here in Athens, and he's going to take advantage of all the people that are coming and going in this very cosmopolitan, historic city. So that's where we are in Athens. We saw the introduction of Paul landing in Athens. We laid some background. and Now we actually want to begin Paul's interaction, evangelistic work, with the unbelievers in that city. And so we'll do that actually in two parts, starting today and then the second part next week. We'll go through the rest of Paul's uh, unprecedented, well, amazing sermon that Luke detailed at length... And today we'll look at the introduction of it. So today we're looking at verses uh, 18 to 23. So go ahead, if you have your Bible, Acts 17, 18 through 23. The title of the sermon I put there today is Paul Confronted in Athens. Confronted. Last week the title was Paul Provoked in Athens. And just in a nutshell, it was Paul arrives in Athens. He goes into this historic city. He walks around the city, broad daylight, and the one thing that sticks out in his mind is he's tripping over idols. It's about everywhere he goes, and there are shrines and uh, temples to false gods and goddesses everywhere. And that's all he can see, as far as the eye can see, as he's looking around the city. Most people went to that tourist city, and they were—they'd be amazed, they were in awe, they appreciated the amazing artwork and those kind of things. But that wasn't Paul's perspective. Those idols and shrines represented false religion and deception, and people being misled away from God into error that could doom their soul for eternity. And so as Paul's response when he saw this was he was provoked on the inside. And it was a spontaneous, visceral, tremendously strong emotional reaction on the inside that just had to come out. He had to vent it. And the way he did was with truth, by speaking truth. He couldn't hold it in. So that was last week. Paul was provoked in the city of Athens. Before he even uh, engaged much with the people who hadn't been there, that's just kind of his first response is, look at all this rampant idolatry, probably like he'd never seen before in his life. And he's highly sensitive to it, number one being a conscientious Jew who mastered the Old Testament, but now being a Christian born again with the Spirit of God who lives in him and the Spirit of God had a lot to do with him becoming provoked. The Spirit of God was stirred up in him out of jealousy for the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is king, who alone is his God and Savior. And so there was a lot that was going on inside Paul that made him provoked, and he had a righteous indignation. And through the control of the Holy Spirit and also being a commissioned prophet of God, his response is to proclaim the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. So let's go ahead and look at the introduction of that mission that Paul has. And I broke it up into four points there just to kind of walk you through verses 18 to 23. Uh, point number one, the critics. Point number two, we'll get to this in a second, but I just want to summarize it for you. The critics, the complaints, the context, and the courage. And we'll start by looking at point number one, which is the first part of verse 18, which I call the critics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so let's go ahead and look. Paul arrives in Athens, walks through the city, he sees all the idols, he's provoked on the inside. Picking up at verse um, 17, just by way of reminder, uh, what did he do? He sees the city full of idols. And he doesn't just write it off and walk out and protest the city. He goes immediately into the synagogue, verse 17, which was Paul's customer pattern. Uh, one thing you need to know about Acts 17 whether you're reading a commentary on it by an evangelical or listening to someone preach on it. Actually, Acts 17 is one of the most disputed passages among Christians. And I'm going to tell you why. (coughs) Sorry about that. Um, In Acts 17, many evangelical Christian Bible teachers and scholars, particularly Christian philosophers today, try to tell us that We know about Paul's ministry and what his routine was, but when he got to Athens among the Greek philosophers, Paul changed his methodology. And what he did is he put aside what he would typically do and he totally adapted to their ways. And so he abandoned his typical preaching and quoting of scripture. And he abandoned his approach of routinely, usually just preaching the gospel and the cross and instead accommodated himself to the Greek pagans and philosophers, and he he changed his methodology in a unique way that he never did anywhere else. And that's what they argue in the point of this passage. And Paul, as a matter of fact, he didn't preach Scripture. He didn't preach the Bible. He didn't preach special revelation. What Paul did is he used human wisdom and Aristotelian logic to go toe-to-toe with these Greek philosophers. And what they, they call this natural theology, not biblical theology, Natural theology. Natural theology is reasoning and talking to people about God but not using the Bible. That's the number one rule. If you're going to talk about natural theology, you're not allowed to use Scripture, the Bible at all. You can only talk about theology using human wisdom and logic. That's natural theology. And so they propose many people say that that's what Paul did here in this passage. That could be very confusing. Paul changed his ways. And they'll actually even quote verses like out of 1 Corinthians where Paul said, uh, you know, I'll do whatever I can to get people saved. And to the Jew, I'm a Jew. I'll go into the synagogue. I'll act like a rabbi. I'll wear the garb of a rabbi. I will honor their routines and their traditions. To the Jew, I'll even have some of my associates get circumcised. But to the, the Greek, I'm a Greek. And so that's what they say. Here, Paul is putting aside his normal routine, and he's accommodating them by becoming one of them. And he's not using the Bible, he's not using the gospel, he's using natural theology, and he's doing this to do pre-evangelism to these total pagans who've never heard the Bible, never heard Scripture, it's totally foreign to them, never heard about Jesus, the resurrection, the Old Testament, and because uh, they have no history whatsoever or even a framework by which to understand gospel truth, Paul couldn't bring the gospel to them because they wouldn't understand it. Paul couldn't talk to them about sin because they wouldn't understand that concept either. So he had to talk to them on their wavelength, using only natural theology, human wisdom, Aristotelian logic, the laws of logic, Socratic method, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But not the Bible. And this is called pre-evangelism. And the idea through pre-evangelism is it's something you do before you evangelize the lost. You kind of uh, you prime the pump, or you skid or you, you uh, slick up the, the slide so they can slide. Down and then eventually enter into the gospel much easier. So, that's the idea of pre-evangelism. It's removing stumbling blocks from unbelievers before you get to the gospel, because they can't handle the gospel cold turkey. That's the theory. This is a huge debate in Christianity, and it affects evangelism. It affects how we preach. It affects our witness. It affects our view of the Bible. It affects how we relate to unbelievers. It affects to our view of apologetics, and on and on it goes. It affects to our view of the authority of Scripture, the efficacy of Scripture. So what is our approach in relation to unbelievers who have no context for Jesus, the gospel, Old Testament, New Testament? Is it true that they can't handle the truth, they can't handle the gospel, cold turkey, therefore we got to do a whole bunch of humanistic rigmarole through human logic to find a common ground before you preach the Bible? That's a very common and popular view among evangelicals. And they say say, this is the quintessential passage to establish that. Paul does not bring these Greek pagans supernatural biblical revelation. He will later, but he starts out with strictly natural theology on their Greek terms. So that's the nexus of the debate. And I would just say that's totally false and not true. And it's clear in the text, and it's also clear based on Paul's missionary pattern that we've seen in acts chapter 13 all the way up to this chapter paul has been a witness a special witness to the gentiles which really means a special witness to the greeks because all the gentiles spoke greek in paul's day it was a hellenized greek world so greek culture had influenced everything and so paul is a missionary to the greeks to the gentiles he's already been doing this for two he's been interacting with greeks for over two years already on the first journey and now on the second missionary journey He's been to many pagan Greek cities already. He's interacted with many Greeks who were influenced by Greek philosophy, the Epicureans, the Stoics, Plato, Aristotle, and all those others. So he's already engaged those kind of people time and time again. And we saw a couple weeks ago that Paul had established a routine and pattern that he didn't deviate from when he went out on his missionary journeys to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Uh, he told us that, and that's even here in the passage Um, let's go ahead and look at it just by way of reminder, just highlighting once again that Paul didn't change his routine. What did Paul do when he went into any pagan city? Step number one is he would try to find a Jewish synagogue. That has been true in every city. We saw that in the last chapter. No, actually in chapter 17, the beginning where it said, as was his custom, as was his custom, Paul went to find a Jewish synagogue first. Then he would preach there. Then he'd get them all riled up and they'd Hate his guts and kick him out of the synagogue. Then he'd go talk to the Greeks and the Gentiles before he got chased out of town by them. So that was his routine. Go to the synagogue. And what did he bring to the synagogue? What was his custom? And was his, as was his custom, he would go to the synagogue and reason with them from the scriptures. That was his routine. He didn't deviate from that. He didn't resort to natural theology, doing theology without the Bible. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. That was his routine. That's what he did. And he would culminate in a presentation of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of your Old Testament scriptures. He would say that to all these Jews in all these pagan Greek cities. Then after he did that, he would go to the Gentiles and the Greeks who were non-Jewish in that pagan city. And what would he do? He would preach Jesus Christ. He would give the gospel. That was it. One thing. Single-minded. The Lord Jesus Christ has called me to be a proclaimer of his gospel, of the Christ and that's it. That was his message. He said this clearly in First Corinthians. We saw this in First Corinthians at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul said that wherever he went, he preached the, the cross of Jesus Christ, and that was it. God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. He even explicitly said, I don't resort to Greek rhetoric or sophistry, but it is the, the cross of Jesus Christ wherever I go, and I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in chapter 2 of First Corinthians. And he said that about his ministry to Corinth. Corinth was only 65 miles away from Athens. They were just as Greek, just as Gentile, just as pagan. And Paul's approach to the Corinthians, who didn't know Christ or the resurrection or the Bible, he went in there, get this cold turkey, and told them about Jesus. So Paul is the model that we are to follow. It's very important. And I'm just... Uh, proposing that's exactly what he did with these Athenian philosophers. He didn't change anything. As a matter of fact, in Galatians, at the end of Galatians chapter 6, may I boast in nothing save the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that was that's what Paul did. I come and I proclaim the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. We're going to see that very evidently in this text. Uh, So verse 17, he goes in to Athens, starts in the synagogue there. Verse 17, he was reasoning... Dialegato, disputing. Uh, all these terms that we're going to see, verse 18, conversing. Verse 17, reasoning. Uh, a couple other terms that are used throughout chapter 17, and every time he goes into a synagogue or he's talking with somebody, all these Greek words are very specific in that they are verbal words. They speak of spoken words, whether it is presenting, whether it's euangelizo, meaning Good-newsing, that's verbally communicating the good news about Jesus Christ. Or dialogue, dialegeto, dialoguing, back and forth. Or the word for proclaim, proclamation. Uh, and there's several other words being used here. Symbolo, that's in verse 18 where he's conversing with the Greeks. All of these, the common denominators, it's verbal exchange. Paul is speaking, he is proclaiming, he is talking, he's answering questions, he's... De- Debating, he's disputing. Which, the reminder is that Christianity is a verbal religion. Sharing the gospel has to be a verbal activity. For someone to hear the gospel and to understand and get saved, they have to hear the gospel. It has to be verbalized orally to them. Or at least see it through the verbal written word on a page. That's also possible. But the idea is it's a spoken language, it's a spoken message. It has to be declared verbally. In other words, no one's going to come to Jesus by watching someone's actions, by being a good example. It's good to have good actions. It's good to be a good example. It's good to do good deeds. God does use our good deeds in the mind and in the conviction of an unbeliever, absolutely. So it's, But it's not sufficient to allow somebody to be born again. There's only one way to be born again, and it's through the verbal proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that then is taken with the Holy Spirit to work on the heart, mind, and the conscience, and the soul of a sinner and to remove their barriers of unbelief, which are personal sin and satanic blindness. And then the Holy Spirit brings them to an understanding and then saves their soul through the power of his gospel, the power of his Holy Spirit, and the power of his grace. But it has to be verbally communicated, absolutely. And that's what Paul is committed to, and we see that everywhere he goes. So people aren't being saved through natural theology. People aren't being saved through just mere uh, good works that they're observing and seeing. So if you're one of those Christians that thinks, well, I'm just, you know, I don't always go out and share the gospel. As a matter of fact, I don't ever share the gospel verbally, but I am uh, a good Christian and I am conscientious of my actions. Well, that's good that you're being obedient to God, but no one's going to get saved through your actions or my actions alone. Very important. And Paul's the master example. You've got to speak up. You've got to proclaim truth. And it's got to be the word of God. It can't be human wisdom. It can't be logic. It can't be evidentialism. It can't be the truth about a so-called archaeological find of a stone. It is the gospel. It's the content of the gospel revealed by God about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did. That is the only thing that can save a sinner. That is the only solution to the ails of humanity. Paul says it over and over again, culminating in Romans 1.16 talking to a bunch of pagans that got saved, a bunch of Greeks that got saved. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel, the good news. Why? Because it is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's it. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, to anyone who would believe it. So it's that gospel message about Jesus Christ that saves. And so Paul is not going to deviate from this. Paul knows where the power is. Paul is uh, laser focused and that's what he continues to do even in Athens. He's not going to be deviating Because People say Athens, Paul stepped away from his typical methodology because Athens was unique. Athens was different. Uh, Athens stood out for many different reasons. There are many variables. It was incredibly diverse. Uh, It was incredibly multicultural. It was unique in terms of its intellectual prowess. Its philosophical mindset. And that set it apart and made a difference. So you can't deal with Athenians the way you would deal with Corinthians and everybody else. Therefore, you've got to change the methodology and change the initial, initial message. You can't, the gospel isn't sufficient. It won't be understood because of the diversity. And I'm thinking, you know, that totally applies to us because where do we live? Here in Northern California? Here in south of San Francisco? We live in probably the most multicultural, demographically diverse city and area in America, really, in terms of demographics, in terms of ethnicities, people from the world, the cosmopolitan nature of everything, and with that comes the diversity of worldviews, it is dramatically different here in terms of worldviews, religions, religions, philosophies and beliefs that you are confronted with probably as a christian on a pretty regular basis than you will find almost anywhere else in the world so there is a parallel there between paul being in athens and cities like that where it was so incredibly diverse i remember moving here from southern texas where we had a baptist church every two blocks on the corner everybody in texas was a christian at least where i lived and then we came here and it was like shocking whoa This is highly different. This is highly challenging. This is, whoa, do we have any examples in Scripture that we can follow? Absolutely. Acts 17 is one of them. But being that we have so many diverse views, religions, beliefs, I mean, people in this area sometimes just invent beliefs, things you've never heard before in your life to an unknown God. How do you talk to that person? How do you engage? What's the common ground? Do you have to master their Worldview before you can even engage in a conversation about spirituality and God with them? Because that's what some people would say. You gotta master, uh, Mormonism before you can talk to a Mormon. You gotta master, uh, the J. Dubs before you can talk to them. You gotta master Islam before you can talk to them. You gotta master, uh, the philosopher, etc before you can talk to them. You gotta master Buddhism and Hinduism if you really want to talk at the level where you can reach a Hindu. You gotta use their, their terms, their worldview, their frame of mind. Because they don't understand your Christianese. Your talk of sin does not compute, so we're told. And I'd say, well, that's not true, just based on how Paul did his ministry and preached. didn't matter who he was confronted with, who he was talking to. He had the same message every single time. And we're going to see that in this passage. So he's reasoning, goes in the synagogue with the Jews, and then God-fearing Gentiles. So we don't know how long Paul was in Athens, verse 17. Could have been a week, could have been two weeks, could have been a month maybe. We don't know. But he definitely spent some time in the synagogue, and he was doing the same thing he always did, preach the gospel out of the scriptures, didn't change anything. And in addition to that, he's also talking to God-fearing Gentiles. We talked about that. Those were Gentiles in the synagogue who weren't full Jews yet, not circumcised, but they were attracted to monotheism and Old Testament Judaism. So he's talking to them as well from the scriptures. And it's all about Jesus Christ. That's what he kept doing in every city. It culminates in Jesus, who he is, introducing Jesus wherever he goes. Uh, so you got the Jews in the synagogues, the god fears in the synagogues, the end of verse 13, 17, and in the marketplace, he was talking to people every single day. Now, who was in the marketplace? That was the, the Agora, the marketplace. That's where they had public exchange. They had the flea market. They were selling. They were buying. And that's, uh, they had all kinds of activities going on. That was kind of the hub of the city. So that was it was just loaded every single day and packed with all kinds of transactions and people rubbing shoulders all over the place from really all over the world. And Paul was there, man. He was loving it. He's talking to every person that he possibly can. And what's he doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. He's not deviating from that. He's not talking natural theology. He's not talking Aristotelian philosophy, or at least not depending upon that for his message. And to convince them and win them over to get a hearing, give them pre-evangelism, then I'll give you the gospel. I'll sneak it in. No, he was direct. He was clear. He was an apostle. How do I know that that's what Paul was doing? Because uh, now it takes us to our passage today, verse 18. While Paul is there, spending days and days and days in Athens, probably all day long, preaching the gospel, talking to people. By the way, in Athens, it was a closed system. There were specific leaders, a senate or a council of men, who were in charge of overseeing the interactions and the social discourse of what was actually going on and being exchanged In the marketplace, in the agora, they were keeping tabs on it as they're listening to all kinds of worldviews and weird religions. And there was leadership overseeing this. It's kind of like the typical public university campus, where you have the courtyard and all this exchange of ideas and crazy, weird beliefs, and then you've got the administration who's monitoring and managing what is being said and sometimes what can be said and what can be brought on the campus, and what wasn't allowed to be spoken on the campus because there wasn't always. Free speech on a university campus. Could you imagine? And so the council of Athens, the legal designated authority that oversaw the morality, the religion, the worldviews of what was going on and being exchanged in the marketplace, that was called the council, or the other formal word was the Areopagus. The the Areopagus is in our text here. And literally, it's a compound word that means hill, the hill of Ares, which was a false god, or a god. They thought it was a true god. Areopagus. It was a hill, right there. Hill of Ares, hill of Mars, Mars Hill, that's where we get that. But it also referred to the council that met on the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. The formal judicial council. That's what they were. It was a judicial council. Historically, it had more legal authority. And usually, they uh, historically, they say that they that council was given over to dealing with capital crimes and cross-examining uh, people who had been accused of murder and the like. The Areopagus, the council. This same council, 400 years before Paul got there, they put Socrates on trial formally. Interrogated him the most influential leader of his day in Athens and the surrounding world, turns out the most influential thinker in the history of the world from a human perspective, Socrates, and he was found guilty as charged for his views. That's it, for his political views and his philosophical views. And he was killed right there in this very same place where Paul is. So that's where Paul is, Uh, but he's commiserating, talking to all kinds of unbelievers, and he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that because verse 18 says this. While Paul is in the marketplace, uh, rubbing shoulders with, talking to people, also some of the Epicureans, this is point number one, the critics, who are they? Well, in this passage, it's the pagan Greek philosophers, point number one. Verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean, and also some also, in addition to, in addition to who? Well, in addition to verse 17 at the end, in addition to the people that Paul was witnessing to in the marketplace, all these people, all these Greeks, all these Gentiles, with all their kooky, crazy different views that he was witnessing to. In addition to those, there was a specific group of people that were highly influential, and they were the esteemed philosophers of the day. There are many kinds of philosophers in Greek paganism, but the two prominent ones here that approached Paul were the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. So there were many schools of philosophers. For whatever reason, Luke highlights these two groups, the Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. They were highly esteemed. They were highly respected. Uh, they were considered the most intelligent philosophers in that day in Athens. They were one of the competing schools of Aristotelian philosophers, as well as those under the influence of Socrates and Plato, different schools, and... Those three had their influences outside of the city of Athens. But these two, in Paul's day, probably reigned supreme, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And Luke uh, picks them out and even names them by name because they were well-known in Paul's day. They would be well-known to Paul's readers. And it was also well-known at that time what their beliefs were. And it's kind of interesting. The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they taught and what they believed, these pagan philosophers uh epicureans who were they so and some of the epicureans so in other words these influential philosophers are in the marketplace and they see this foreigner guy come to town he looks like a jewish kind of a rabbi guy with all of his jewish garb and the color of his skin and maybe they overheard him speaking some aramaic and some hebrew over there to his buddies or, or you know people that he knew and they're kind of keeping an eye on paul as a matter of fact some of these philosophers who were so influential uh obviously got into a conversation or overheard heard Paul talking directly because verse 18 says, and also Paul was talking to some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he engaged them and got in conversation with them. And so the Epicureans uh, were found uh, followers of their founder, Epicurus, who lived 300 years before Paul. And he was an influential philosopher. And just to some, there's, a lot of debate about what he actually taught and believed, and then his view kind of evolved over the course of three centuries. So, not quite sure what it looked like in Paul's day, the Epicureans. But we do know, everybody's pretty much unanimous, that the Epicureans were deists, precursors of what we would call deists. In other words, uh, yeah, I guess there is a God or some kind of uh, ultimate being, but he either just kind of got it going originally, or actually... Created it, maybe, and then he just kind of left and left it to run on its own. So if there was a creator, he has absolutely no influence in the world today. He's the the distant, transcendent, ultimate being that we would call this deism. Then on the other end were the Stoics, and their founder was Zeno. And he lived about 300 years before Paul as well. And the Stoics were pantheists. So Epicurean's deists. A God created it, walked away, and then the Stoics following Zeno were pantheists for the most part. God is in everything and God's a part of everything. That rock is God, that uh, lightning bolt is God, that grass is God, that cow is God, that man is God, that tornado is God, that fruit is God, that cow is God, everything, pantheism. So, God, so these are two extremes. One says God is not involved at all in our lives whatsoever. And the other one says God is involved. God is not only involved, he is everywhere. He is everything for the Stoics. So the Stoics, because they believed in pantheism and that God was literally everywhere and everything, that's why they had statues and aisles to everything. This God is dedicated to the God of uh, lightning bolts. This God is dedicated to the God of thunderstorms. This God is dedicated to the God of fertility. This God is uh, the goddess of arts and crafts and on and on. And so that's why they could have over 30,000 different gods in their day. Sounds kind of like Hinduism or other religions that have so many so-called gods. Also because the Stoics believed that God was in everything, they felt like because God is in everything, that's the way it's supposed to be, therefore you can't change or influence anything. Which was kind of a fatalistic attitude about life. You can't change it, you can't influence. Well, yeah, okay, so... So-and-so got run over by a chariot. Oh, well, you know, that was the god of the chariots in the wheel of the chariot that ran him over. It was supposed to be in the god of the payment where the blood splattered. So, oh, well, everything is God. You can't change it. And so, hence, this idea of stoicism comes from the stoic's view, this fatalistic view. You can't change anything, so you've got to have a stiff upper lip. That's just the way it is. So it was fatalistic. Now, in addition to Epicurean and what he believed, that he was deistic, they also believed or at least Epicurus taught, a form of hedonism. And his axiom was very simple. If it feels good, some of you were probably going to say, just do it. No, that's America. Let me try it again. (laughs) If it feels good, it is good. Sometimes Epicureanism today in our modern vernacular refers to those who enjoy the pleasures of life, particularly eating and drinking, and they're particularly sophisticated about it. They're not just total out-of-control gluttons. That wasn't Epicurus originally. It's devolved into that, but that wasn't what it originally was. So the Epicurean was pursuing the pleasurable and the good in this life, and by doing that by avoiding all pain and discomfort and being deists in their view. So these are the two categorically opposite views that pretty much dominate philosophical life. And another thing about the Epicureans and the Stoics that Paul had to confront was they were very different than Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, who were philosophies, philosophers of keen intellect who actually thought it was possible by the power of reason and logic to determine objective truth and determine ultimate truth. What we might call foundationalism from a philosophical term today. Well, that view had so... Their views had uh, were of the past in the days of Paul and the Epicureans and the Stoics that the dominant Greek philosophers in Paul's day didn't believe that. They were kind of like post-moderns of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. They didn't believe you could discover... Ultimate truth and objective truth by way of reason. So as a result, they were primarily, they were skeptics. They were cynics. That's what they were. So they were more concerned about the crass temporal things of the day rather than ongoing ultimate truth and what happens after death, etc., etc. So uh, there was a, a, a huge, tremendous paradigm shift in the emphasis of how the Greeks thought and the Greek philosophers in the days of Paul as opposed to the glory days with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So primarily the Epicureans and the Stoics, the thing they had in common was uh, it was all based on human wisdom, human observation, their logic. And also it was sceptic, skeptical and, and they were cynical. And that ultimate truth couldn't possibly be known. So th- those are the two schools that now uh, have entered, engaged with Paul. Look at verse 18, the critics. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were out in the marketplace, in the Agora, who were commiserating and walking around, they engaged Paul. It says, verse 18, in the New American Standard, these philosophers were conversing with him, conversing with Paul. That word is very interesting, symbolo. What does that mean? To throw with, to throw in with. And here are some of the literal translations from a Greek dictionary of symbolo, where it says Paul was, the philosophers were conversing with Paul. To have an encounter with. That's a pretty dramatic way to say you had a conversation with somebody. How did it go with Sally today at church? Well, we had an encounter. You'll never believe. You know, that's the idea. Very heavy, very weighty, very significant. Uh, Another literal translation, engage with. The philosophers engaged with Paul. Another translation, the philosophers disputed with Paul. Here's the literal wording, to throw together, to, to debate, to have deep conversation. It's, the picture is like two rams coming together and just smashing horns with one another or locking horns with one another. So the Greek philosophers, they locked horns with Paul. That, hopefully that gives you the graphic, concrete description that it's really what it's talking about here. This was not a light, superficial, ho-hum, friendly, fly-by-night conversation. This was heavy. They were locking horns. They talked at a very deep level, a very deep intellectual level, a very deep reasoning level, a very passionate level, probably an extended conversation, going back and forth, bantering back and forth as Paul is speaking truth from Almighty God. And they are speaking truth from uh, the pool of human wisdom. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. That's the exchange. This would be like, imagine the Apostle Paul coming today and going on to the Berkeley campus to de- to have a debate with the professors there. Or Paul, and guest speaker this Thursday in such and such auditorium at Stanford University. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Christianity in the narrow way, all are invited. And we'll have a response panel from the faculty of Stanford University. That's kind of what was going on here. Because again, Athens was the intellectual, academic center capital of the world in Paul's day. These Greeks prided themselves on being highly educated, and they were just downright arrogant. Downright arrogant. As they looked down their nose at those who they contended with. As a matter of fact, in the pool of Greek words in the New Testament that Paul used, Jesus used, they say that the Greeks didn't have a word for humble or humility. Can you imagine? So so the Christians had to make one up. Well, that's kind of the attitude of these stuffy academicians. So they are locking horns with the Apostle Paul. And what were they saying to him? So here, they had enough engagement with Paul. They They overheard him talk enough in the marketplace. And also from personal experience, here's what they concluded. They didn't say, well, you know, Paul is engaging us on an equal level of sophisticated Aristotelian logic and natural theology. And it was quite engaging and enlightening. No, he, they didn't say that. Here's what they said. They were kind of disgusted. Fooey. this guy Paul. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That was their summary statement. They heard Paul, they talked with him, they engaged him at length, and they concluded he is an idle babbler. You know what that means? That's one word in the Greek. Seed picker. Spermologos. Sperm, seed, logos, word. He's a seed picker. What is that? That's a reference to a bird and not a nice bird. Uh, one of those birds that goes out on the street and, and picks at dead bodies and dead flesh and then flies away real quick. That's what Paul is. That's what they're accusing him of, being a seed picker. The implication there uh, in their vernacular of their day and with their terminology was that Paul didn't have anything of substance to say. He was a seed picker, meaning he went around and he picked a little bit here. He, he picked one sentence that was profound from this guy and something from that guy and something from that guy and, that guy and, and then just kind of rolled it all together and there was no uh, consistency or coherence in his thinking. He didn't have a detailed system of any depth whatsoever. He's just saying things off the top of his head. He's totally superficial and shallow. And most of all, being a seed picker, he doesn't have an original thought in his mind. He's just a living thesaurus of being a plagiarizer of the ideas of other people. And they don't, they're do not they not even consistent with one another. That's what they meant by seed picker. That's why the New American Standard says idle babbler. Blah, 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 blah. Literally, that's the word. That's what they thought of Paul. So that's what they concluded. Based on the content of what he was saying. Well, what was the content of what he was saying? So they're conversing with him and some are saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That's rhetorical for he's an idiot. Well, let's go to point number two. So those are the critics, the pagan Greek philosophers, the deistic Epicureans who says God is not involved in our life. He didn't care. Don't waste your time praying. He's also not going to hold you accountable. So therefore, be a hedonist. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you may die. And then the Stoics on the other end. You can't change anything. God's in everything. The gods are in everything. So have a stiff upper lip. Grin and bear it. It's the way it is. Too bad. Point number two. So those were the critics. The complaints. The complaints. Well, the complaints of who? Well, The complaints lodged by the Epicureans and the Stoics. They had great influence in the marketplace. We know that because they're the ones that are eventually taking Paul formally to the Areopagus, which was actually kind of putting him on trial. So they had authority or either delegated authority. And they were complaining about Paul. That's said, we need to shut this guy down. We need to isolate this guy. We need to cross-examine this guy. He needs further investigation. We can't leave him here uh, unaccountable. commiserating with the people. We need to take action. So they had a complaint. What was their complaint? Uh, a summary of it is a fear of a worldview. These Epicureans and phlo- Stoic philosophers, they were afraid of Paul's foreign, different worldview. Wow, he's saying things we haven't heard before. He's saying weird stuff we can't decipher or explain. And what do people often do when they can't win the argument or they don't want to submit to a new truth? Uh, they... Whatever they fear, they turn it into an enemy or they try to uh, bury it, muzzle it, isolate it, shut it up, put it on trial, condemn it, foreign worldview. And Paul did have a foreign worldview. What was his foreign worldview? It was a Christian worldview. It's amazing. Of The Greeks, they were polytheists. They were ecumenical, meaning they would welcome all kinds of false religions from all over the world. They didn't think they were false religions. They thought they were true religions. And so they welcomed a stranger coming in from town who's got a new religious view and a new God. Oh, cool. Let's make another idol. Let's put it in that corner. Boom. Bring it on. The more, the merrier. So they they prided themselves in being liberal. Free speech. The arena of ideas. The birthplace of democracy. So was Athens. Well, not, not with the Christian worldview, though. Uh-uh. Can't handle that one. And so they started complaining and criticizing, calling him a seed picker, a babbler, a senseless, ignorant babbler. And here's the other charge, second part of verse 18. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. And the word for deity there is demon. Demon. He's talking about spiritual things, weird, and not just demons, but weird demons, strange demons. Foreign demons, says one translate, Foreign. they would never heard it before. This is new stuff. That's why we know Paul wasn't talking about natural theology. This was not man-made theology. This is divine, special revelation that came from God and God alone. And God gave it to the apostle Paul. Paul was A conduit of God's heavenly wisdom to give to the people. Paul had Old Testament truth written down in Scripture, which was also special revelation, not human wisdom. So he's he's preaching that, but also he's a conduit of new special revelation uh, about Jesus Christ and also that God was giving him directly from heaven called special revelation. No man invented it. Paul says that in Galatians. I didn't learn the truth of the gospel or the stuff about Jesus or the mysteries that I'm proclaiming. I didn't learn it from any man. I didn't learn it from the apostles. God gave it to me. Special revelation. It came from God. He authored it. This is not intuition of human reason. This is not common sense. This couldn't be observed anywhere. The transcendent God of the universe broke into the human life and the human arena of thought, and dispensed and gave this information to Paul to give to these people afresh and anew. So that's why they said, this is foreign. We have never heard that. We've got 30,000 gods, and we've never heard your view. We've never heard about your crazy gods. And that's what they're arguing. They're threatened by it. That's why at the end of verse 18. Uh, there, he seems to be proclaimer of strange demons or strange gods with a small g, because he was preaching. Now, this is probably Luke's comment here. Because he was preaching his UN, UN Galizo. Because he was good newsing. They were threatened by it, yet ironically, it's good news. This is the only truth that can set you free. This is the only truth that can allow you to. Know your maker personally. This is the only thing, the only truth that can save your soul, forgive your sin, guarantee eternity with Almighty God in heaven forever. It's good news. They didn't see it that way. They feared the good news. But Luke's writing, he says, you know, they're freaking out because Paul was good-newsing about these foreign gods who are the foreign gods, Jesus, and the other god, the resurrection. When the Greeks heard Paul talking about resurrection, they thought he was talking about another god. Because they they were just polytheists. That was their worldview. And they thought Jesus was a new god and the resurrection was a new god. And they had gods not just for people and persons. They also had gods for ideas and virtues and practices and actions. And they thought resurrection was a god. Here's Paul, the polytheist, and we got new gods, Jesus and resurrection. What do they look like? Where's the statue? Let me see it. So that's what he was preaching, Jesus and the resurrection. And so Luke says Paul didn't change his methodology. He wasn't preaching natural theology. He wasn't wasting his time uh, with Aristotelian Greek logic to grease the slide before he preaches the gospel. The gospel doesn't need to be primed before it can be given. You can give an unbeliever, any unbeliever, the gospel, get this, cold turkey. Talking about God the creator, Adam and Eve falling into sin, separated from God, God's solution, God, the creator of the universe, came down literally in the form of a man, 100% human, who was perfect, but God, and 100% God, 100% man. His name was Jesus, which means God saves. He lived for 33 years. He was totally perfect. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He himself was God. He deserves worship. He's the only way to get into heaven. He's the only way to have wrong things forgiven. He's the only way that get you back in a right relationship with God, the creator. He, by the way, is the only judge at the end of the age. And every person will bow the knee to this judge named Jesus, regardless of your ethnicity, what country you're from, what religion you believe, no matter what you look like. doesn't matter. Every person will bow the knee to this Jesus, Jesus, in Greek, who is judge. The only savior, you can't save yourself, you can only come to know him on a, in a personal relationship one way, and that's by believing in who he is and what he did. His work on the cross, and then you explain the cross. That is the gospel, that is the only thing that saves. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your background, what your education, what your gender is, what your social class, the gospel is for every human being. And the guarantee that it will make sense, or at least be understood, to the point of believing or rejecting it. That's how you know an unbeliever understands the gospel when in rage and anger they reject it. The reason we know that they can understand it is because we're not doing this on our our own in our own strength. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, takes the gospel message that I just explained and literally imprints it and assimilates it into the conscience and the mind of a human being when they hear it. It is the work of the Spirit of God. So it's not done on a human level. It's invisible. It is supernatural. You give the gospel to an unbeliever. You give it thoroughly. They understand it. They say, oh, okay, yeah, wow, that's kind of weird. I don't know if I believe that. Or maybe they're offended. Oh, that's offensive. I'm not a sinner. I never sinned it. I haven't killed anybody. Or their response is, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Wow, I want to talk more, but let me think about that. So you get these different responses to the gospel message. And then they walk away. But they didn't pray to receive Jesus on the spot. So were you a failure as an evangelist? Well, you weren't successful. You didn't, you didn't close the deal. Like one famous preacher who wrote a book called Power Evangelism, and in the book he says he can get an unbeliever to believe in Jesus 100% of the time in his conversations with him. Really, that's what it says, Power Evangelism. I'm thinking, wow, that's a better percentage than Jesus did. Anyway, so there's a problem there. Probably not giving the whole gospel. Um, Usually what happens, we talk to somebody cold turkey, we give them the gospel, and then they leave with no response. Were we a failure? Absolutely not. Cause you know what's going on? The gospel, the seed of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is actually the living word of God. It lives on. It's entered their conscience, their might, I mean their mind, their heart, their soul. It's, it's still percolating inside them, even though we can't see it. In addition to that, the Spirit of God, according to Acts or, uh, John 7, 16, the Spirit of God is stirring up that Word of God inside of them. He's working on their conscience in light of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is doing that invisibly and continually. So you could have shared the gospel with somebody 25 years ago, one time, 25 years later, they're still not saved. Guess what the Spirit of God is doing on their heart, their mind, and their conscience? He is still massaging their conscience with the truth of the gospel they heard 25 years ago. And the Holy Spirit will not relent. That's why prayer is so powerful. We pray, we give the gospel, we plant the seed, and we pray, God, we know your spirit. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is working on their heart with the gospel. God, through your spirit, continue to convict them. Remove the blindness from sin and from Satan. Soften their heart. Bring them to you as you plead with God through prayer. So 30 years later, somebody gets saved from a gospel they heard 30 years prior. God's the one that determines success. Not us. We're, we're responsible for faithfulness, not outward success when it comes to evangelism. So, very important, practical. Uh, let's go on. Uh, looking at the complaints. So, they fear this worldview, this Jesus, and this resurrection they've never heard of. And then look at uh, verse uh, point number three is the context. Here's what they do next. So, they're probably a little afraid, a little intimidated. Uh, they just went toe-to-toe with him, clashing horns. So they take action. It says they took him. Picture that. This is probably kind of coerced and forceful. They had authority, and they're going to take him to a a formal court setting. They took him. You know what? You need to go with us. We are the designated... We're going to take you to the council and the senate of the city who manages and oversees all these affairs, and they need a hearing from you and your weird beliefs. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which was that it's a formal court where he would be interrogated. So that's the context. What is the context? It is a formal public inquiry. The Areopagus in Paul's day was a judicial court. It was not, and this is where a lot of people really mess up historically, and they, they think Mars Hill or the Areopagus was like a philosophical debating society. Not even close. It's a judicial court setting. And Paul is going to be interrogated. So they take him, they brought him to the Areopagus, just less than a hundred yards away from the court from the agora, the courtyard. And when he's on trial, then they begin to interrogate May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. And Paul preached with authority. That was another unique and distinct thing about Christianity and Paul and preachers and Jesus and Peter and Paul. They proclaimed dogmatically. They proclaimed with authority. They proclaimed emphatically. They proclaimed objectively. They proclaimed that it was black and white, that this is truth. Truth is narrow. Jesus is the way. That's how he preached. It wasn't, oh, maybe this, and maybe this, and maybe that, and possibly this. That is a distinctive of biblical preaching because they had they were conduits of divine information from Almighty God. That's the emphasis there on the word proclaiming. It's a decree Paul is issuing. It is a decree he's issuing that is authoritative. It is binding. It doesn't matter if you've never heard it. You are now accountable. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, or Christians, well, you can't say that to them. You can't quote the Bible to them. He's an unbeliever. No, yeah, actually, I can. Well, why do you say that? Well, Jesus did and the apostles did. That's what the Bible says to do. Preach the gospel to every creation. That's what it says. Preach the gospel to everyone. What is the gospel? It's the Bible. We do have common ground with every unbeliever. That's why you don't have to master all the religions of the world before you can even talk to somebody reasonably. The common ground isn't in their worldview. The common ground is that every human being has been made in the image of God. The common ground is that every human being has a conscience. And the common ground is the Spirit of God is working on our behalf as we talk to them with divine truth. That's why you can go up to anybody and it doesn't matter their religion. Or even if they're an atheist. You know how you speak to an atheist? You speak to the conscience of an atheist. I don't believe in God, I don't believe that stuff, I don't believe that stuff. And you just keep talking to him, and the Spirit of God is going to take the truth of the living Word of God, the Bible and the Gospel, and impress it upon his conscience. And he, he's lying. He does believe in God, and he's being convicted. He's trying to hide it. So they took him and brought him to the, to the court or the council. Uh, what are these strange things you are teaching? Verse 24, you are bringing some strange things. Well, they just can't get over it. Strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Verse twenty-one, and uh, now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. See, they, they just had a fascination with the new. Oh, I want to be fascinated by the new, something new, something new. It kind of sounds like our culture. Sounds like the human race, actually, right? Always looking for something new. Whereas typically in the Bible, it's like if it's new, it's not true. But for the world, it's give me something new. So those are the complaints, the foreign world view. And then finally, the last point there, Uh, after the context is the courage. Paul exposes their deception and their ignorance. So some would say that, well, Paul was preaching natural theology, and he didn't want to hurt their feelings, and he didn't want to offend them. And so you know, he's treading lightly and on his tippy toes and trying to accommodate them. And no, he's not, uh, not at all. Look, he's very courageous and bold and speaking truth very clearly, black and white. So, verse 22. So, this is kind of funny. Paul's on trial, and yet, very quickly, he turns it around and puts them on trial. I'm not on trial here. Actually, you are on trial in light of God's truth. Verse 22. So, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. He he is filled with the Spirit of God, so he has courage. He's not doing this in his own strength. And he said, men of Athens. So, he's being respectful. Men of Athens. He knows they are made in the image of God. They are candidates for the gospel. He's not showing any partiality. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. This is a neutral statement. He's not complimenting them. He's not criticizing them. He's just This is an objective observation. Yeah, I understand you are very religious. There are idols all over the place. Which is true of every culture in the history of the world. We are inescapably religious because we're made in the image of God. We will worship something. Even the atheists will worship something. Humans are inescapably religious. Verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. They're they're worshiping 29,999 gods with a name, and in case they missed one, whoa, we better put to an unknown god in case we missed one. They're worshiping that which they do not know. That is literally ignorance, to not know. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance. So he told them, point blank, they are ignorant. You're ignorant. You don't know. You need to be given the truth. So this is Paul's courage. He's not accommodating them. He's straightening them out with the truth. But he loves them as human beings. But you need to know the truth. You are ignorant. You are misled. You are deceived. You're worshiping the wrong thing. Let me tell you about the true creator. You have a desire for religion. You know that you should worship something greater than yourself. And that's that's true. Because God put that instinct in you. You have a conscience. There is natural revelation. The Spirit of God is working on the hearts of unbelievers to convict them of sin. And there will be a religious expression through every human being in some way or another. We are inescapably religious. But you're wrong about your religion. You need divine revelation. Human wisdom isn't enough. Logic isn't enough. Aristotle's not enough. You need God to intervene into your world and into what you think and the truth that you have accessible to you. It needs to come from God. It is special revelation, and Paul is going to dispense that to them. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he can dispel their ignorance, and then he's going to proclaim to them the gospel. And once their ignorance is dispelled, they are then accountable to the creator and the judge of the universe. And we're going to see that at the end of the passage next week. But let me close with this. In Paul's day, in that Greek culture, by that time, 400 plus years, actually almost 600 years of Greek intellect, Greek wisdom, Greek philosophy, the Greeks, by the time Paul came around, the Greeks had exhausted every conceivable human worldview, religion, and ideology possible. We know that because their writings are still extant. We can discern that. In other words, there is not a religion today, an ideology, a philosophy that is 100% unique and new from a human point of view. Because in every single one of them, there is actually a kernel of which goes back to the Greeks. And I'm just going to give you an example to show that. Uh, in Paul's day, the Greeks at that time had already taught on and articulated hedonism, humanism, skepticism, cynicism, deism, agnosticism, fatalism, polytheism, necromancy talking to dead people, reincarnation, Zeno believed in reincarnation, annihilationism, elitism, rationalism, atomism, empiricism, ecumenism, evidentialism, asceticism, philosophy of all sorts, idolatry and immorality, and atheism. I guarantee you, you come up with a religion to me and tell me, uh, well, we can't witness to Hindus because they have a different worldview. Well, Paul witnessed to the Greeks and Hinduism is just another expression of ideologies that the Greeks had that Paul witnessed to. There is no ideology. Because the reason is there's nothing new today is because it's all man-made. So it's finite. It is limited. And sin, sin expresses itself the same way over and over and over again. And the point being, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just master the gospel. Don't master the ideologies of the world. Master the gospel, be a faithful steward, and take it with you wherever you go, no matter who you're talking to. And whoever that unbeliever is, remember your common ground. That person was, they are sacred. They are made in God's image. They are a candidate for the gospel. And I, oh, I'm fearful and I lack courage and they're smarter than me and they've got a higher education than me, but I've got the spirit of God who's going to take that gospel and penetrate their innermost being with his truth. And afterwards I'm going to pray the power of prayer. And God does miracles through the power of prayer. So it really helps our methodology and our philosophy about being effective evangelists. And With that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord and thank him for that beautiful simplicity of the gospel and his commission for us as we go out into this very complicated, confusing world. Father, we thank you for our time together. Again, we thank you for the treasure of the word of God, scripture. Thank you for the courage of the Apostle Paul who called on unbelievers to watch his model, his example. And thank you at the center of it was the proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Empower us to do the same, all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.